Welcome to The Favorites, the podcast from the Action Network. I am Chad Millman. I will be joined today by Sean Zarillo, our lead baseball writer, and a very special guest from the baseball world with some incredible stories. If anybody has been following at DonAugust38 on Twitter for the past few days, you would have seen something very special because Don is a former Major League Baseball player who, once his Major League career was over, traveled around the world playing baseball. And he has been sharing strings of stories on Twitter, at DonAugust38, which are both frightening and hilarious and feel like they are straight out of Bull Durham or Ball Four. Don August is on the phone from Milwaukee, discovered by our producer extraordinaire, Matt Mitchell, also from Milwaukee. Don, thanks for coming on The Favorites, man. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for the introduction. Sounds good. How is your quarantine going? How are you spending it? Are you with family? What's your situation? Well, I'm at home. It's just me and the wife. My son has come up to visit us. He's been staying here for the last couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, we're making do. So I mentioned off the top, you have a, a Twitter feed at DonAugust38. You started telling some stories recently. Before we get into the stories, what compelled you to even think about, hey, I want to start sharing some of these things? Well, actually, I, I'm in the process of writing a book, sharing all of these stories. My son, kind of like my PR guy, I guess, he just thought, hey, why don't we just throw a few stories on Twitter and just kind of see what happens. And I think tonight we're going we're gonna to put out another one, too, from Dominican Republic. I do have some questions about your major league career and your college career, because not only did you play in the majors, you won a silver medal at the Olympics in 84. Talk about what that experience is like. What's it like to pitch for your country and then actually win a medal? It's, it's a great honor. You hear people always kind of say that, and that's truly what it is. You know, as a, as a young kid, I grew up in Southern California, and I watched the Dodgers and the Angels. I followed them. I played baseball, and uh, you know, I went to a little small college out there in Southern California called Chapman University. It was a D2 school, and I always watched all the Olympics that I can remember being a kid, you know, maybe be the summer and the winter Olympics. So I had kind of dreams like that as a kid. Then going into my junior year of college, there was going to be baseball in the Olympics and that were in L.A. So I went for the tryouts, and I placed second in the tryout, which was held at Cal State Fullerton. I came number two out of 160-something guys. Shane Mack out of UCLA was the number one guy. So they kind of put your name on a list and kind of waited for the season to come around. And I had a great year. And, you know, we went on this big, long Olympic tour tryout beforehand, starting out with 31 players. Had to be trimmed down to the final 20. I made that, and I was able to pitch in the Olympics. And, I mean, what an experience coming out of a little tiny, dinky Chapman College to, you know, playing in a full house at Dodger Stadium in a in the Olympics. So it was a great experience. It, it helped me and I know it helped my teammates too, but it helped me kind of take into that next step to get to the major leagues and kind of play in an atmosphere and, and crowd like that. Don, playing at that big league level, you know, playing against so many great players, future Hall of Famers, some of them teammates of yours, some of them, you know, guys you're playing against. You struck out Joe Carter a bunch of times. I think you struck him out more than you did any other player. What batter, you know, when he got in the box, would you say it just kind of had a different feel than anybody else you would face. The guy that I, I'm going against that I didn't like coming up to play was George Brett. So I'm not the only guy, but, you know, the first time I was facing him, I mean, already he was, you know, a major league legend. And I, one thing I noticed is he stood way off the side of the plate. 
not in the back of the batter's box, but to the side. Like he's like almost out of it. And I thought, there's no way this guy can reach an outside pitch, you know? So I thought I throw that little sinker fastball away. He jumps out there and reaches out and he smoked a line drive off the center field fence. Like, whoa, wow. Well, I thought, well, if he's jumping out to get that outside pitch, well, then I might as well just bust him inside then. So next at that, I come in with a nice hard inside pitch. He flung those fast hands right on through and just ripped a line drive, double down the right field line. So not only has he done that to me, he's done that to a lot of other guys. But, you know, he was just a, a great player, of course, you know, batting titles in three different decades. So that's a no-brainer, I think. All right. So you were on the Brewers in 88. You won 13 games. I think that was your first year with the Brewers. You have Paul Molitor, Hall of Famer. You've got Robin Yount, Hall of Famer. You've got Rob Deere, not Hall of Famer. Of all the guys on that team, who is the guy who you would want to go have a beer with? Oh, God, there's a bunch of guys back then. We're young and single, so, yeah, we did have a few beers. The pitchers kind of hung out more with the other pitchers on the most part. You know, especially if we were starting pitchers. You know, if we pitched one day, we had three to four days off. So the guys on the team back then were Tom Filer, Chris Bazio, Mike Birkbeck, Mark Knutson. Those are some of the pitchers that I mostly hung around with in that, in that year. All right. So you were in the, in the majors for four years. You won 13 games. You won 12 games. A third year, uh, you only pitched in three games. The fourth year, you went nine and eight. And then you're out of baseball in the majors. What happened? Well, you know, like, not fully sure, but I, I think just things happen. Uh, there's always those young guys coming up behind you. Um, you got to be good all the time. You know, you got to be consistent. My first couple of years, I did pretty good. My third year, I struggled. I didn't pitch that many games in, in Milwaukee. They even sent me down to the minor leagues. I went in AAA, which was in Denver at the time. So, you know, you, you're struggling. You get down to, sent down to Denver to try to work on your pitching of all places. Um, the reason why I left the Brewers after that last season is they took me off the 40-man roster at the end of the year, which made me a free agent. So I thought I had 20-something other baseball teams that would take me. I signed a deal with the San Francisco Giants in that winter. But just before going into spring training, they made a trade. Uh, they traded Kevin Mitchell, who was an all-star at the time for the Giants. They traded him to Seattle for three pitchers. They got Dave Berba, Bill Swift, and Mike Jackson. So they kind of took some, some opportunities away, and then I got released out of spring training. And it was like a battle after that to try to get back to the majors, a little bit in the minors here and there. But then that's when kind of went, well, you know, I started going on this international thing. And that's how I ended up finishing up my, my baseball career. Yeah, so Don, you, you kick around in the minor leagues for a couple of years, end up in Mexican League, which a lot of people I don't think realize is unaffiliated AAA baseball. It's not actually a, a separate foreign professional league. It's a little weird. So how, do, you know, how does it get broached to the idea that you're going to leave the minor league system and, and go play in Mexico or go play in Taiwan? Is that something that your agent brings up to you? Is that something you hear from you know, former teammates who end up taking that route? How does, how does a, a player kind of find his way into a different professional league? Well, I, I was hoping to get another deal at the very least back to AAA with a team here. Pitch will hopefully make it back to the major leagues. Uh, while my agent was trying to find me a team going into the 1993 season, no team was giving me any chances, which I thought was surprising. I mean, at least a minor league spring training invite. You know, hopefully you know, I'd like to have gotten a major league invite, but not even a minor league invite anywhere. When my agent was um, talking to the Texas Rangers, they told my agent that they have a working agreement with one of the Mexican league teams, that there would be an opportunity that I could go there and play. Well, since I didn't have anywhere to go for spring training, I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll do this Mexican league thing. 
they start their season like in the God, about the middle of March somewhere. So I figured guys would be in spring training, but I would be pitching in games and getting paid. And then I had my agent, though, make a deal with the Mexican League team. If you're to leave the Mexican League team, you usually have to be to go to a major league team. I got him to get me a deal that I could find a AAA team to be able to leave the Mex- you know, the team I was in Mexico. So that's what I ended up doing. So next thing you know, I'm, I'm down in Mexico, and that became pretty much the beginning of my international play. And just being an American, traveling around in different parts of the world to play baseball, you know, I, I, I accumulated a lot of stories. So how do you end up in Taiwan? I'd already played now a season and a half in Mexico. I got an opportunity in 1995 to go to spring training with the Pittsburgh Pirates, AAA deal, major league invite. But that was the year the, there was the lockout. Remember, there was no 1994 World Series, and that lingered into spring training. So I had a minor league contract. So I went to spring training with the Pirates. Eventually, towards the end of spring training, the lockout was done, and the real rate, major league baseball players were back at it. And then there's going to be a lot, there's going to be like a, a little delay because they're going to have a late start to spring training and they're going to expand the rosters and do all these things. So I made the AAA team to go start the regular minor league season. Now, my old scout who drafted me out of college, he, he, he kind of informed me, he says, hey, um, I know some guys that are agents and they're a pipeline to get players to Taiwan. He said, there's actually a team out there where an owner in Taiwan wants you on his team. I'm like, wow, how does he even know about me? So I say, hey, I'm doing fine in AAA right now with the Pirates. They say, hey, I know, I know, but if something happens, give me a call. Well, after the first month of the season, you know, the Pirates were, and everybody were sending their players down, and it was crunch time, so the Pirates released me. So I said, okay, baseball is a mess here in the United States. I'll go to Asia, man. Let me go see what baseball is like over there. And then I'll try to get back in the States when things are all back under control. So that's just what kind of happened. And I went there for one year. It turned into being five. And little did you know that baseball in Taiwan was as crazy and potentially messy as it was in the major leagues. So tell a little bit about what your experience was there and a very specific story that you shared on Twitter that uh, is a very good reason why you would end up on the Favorites podcast. Okay. Well, I go to Taiwan, go play some baseball there. The fans love baseball there in Taiwan. That's their number one sport. They love it. About the last year or so, when I played there, they started building these nicer baseball stadiums. When I was playing there, these, these old kind of old ballparks of some sort. Now, they were able to hold 12, 15, up to maybe some of these parks, 18,000 people. But they were kind of beat up. They're all dirt infield kind of. But the fans there are, are incredible. Some people, I heard some people describe it as like Friday night football games. I mean, they have bands and they're just was like half the stadium is one team. The other half is the other. They wear the team's colors on both sides of the stadium. They both got their bands and they're playing music. They got drums. They're banging them and banging. They got these plastic bat things that they bang, bang, bang to. And they're, they're chanting. They're singing. They're running back and forth with these big old banners. I mean, it's just crazy. And it's just loud the whole game. It's a the different kind of game. It's more of a small ball type of game. You know, there's a lot of bunning going on early in the games and things like that. But it was, a, it was a difference for me to go to another part of the world. You know, I was kind of getting my Spanish down, you know, then Mexico. And I played a couple of winter balls in Puerto Rico and the, the Dominican. Now I had to go learn how to try to speak Chinese to survive. The food is different. The culture is different. Baseball is kind of played a little bit differently. But, you know, I, I learned how to get by and survive by already playing these different countries. You know, you, you learn how to find your way around. You learn the key words to speak so you, you don't starve to death. You know how to get from one place to another and all that sort of stuff. 
But then I guess the key point we're getting to, I mean, one thing bad though, as I say before, is in Taiwan, they were starting to pay some nicer and nicer money. Someone told me, hey, baseball is really growing in Taiwan. You can eventually make about a million bucks a year there. I went, okay, I'll, let me see what that's about. I mean, but the way I saw the fans there, and every game is televised throughout the whole country, and I thought there's a potential. Well, then there's the rumblings. I, it was in my second year in Taiwan that me and some guys, you know, a couple of another American guy on my team, we started to hear that some guys were like fixing some baseball games to win or lose by a certain amount of runs or to actually have to lose the game. We started hearing about that. So me and my, my buddy, we were kind of sort of watching the games more closely to see if we can notice if this was really happening or not. You know, so we were watching the other teams play and we were watching our teammates to see if there's any kind of goofy going on. So I was really hoping and believing that it wasn't true. But at one point uh, during the season, you know, the home city I played, it was called Taichung. And the, the one of the teams from Taipei, which is the capital of capital city of Taiwan, the Elephants team was in town playing us in a four-game series. And then the next day, we heard this big commotion going on that some of the Elephant players ran into these gangsters at a, at a bar, and they took them back to the hotel. And the story was there's two sets of gangsters that had these Elephant players supposed to manipulate a game for them. One group had them to win. The other group had them to lose. So the, the group that, that got supposedly crossed ran into these guys at that bar took them back to their hotel room, and one of the elephant players kind of lipped off to these gangsters, and he proceeded to pull a gun out and pistol whip them across the head. So now that next day at our ballpark, we saw this extra security around their dugout and at, at the field, too, and we saw this guy that had a big old bandage wrapped around his head and all this kind of stuff. So we kind of started hearing the story from that. So then it was like, man, there must be something going on with this. About three weeks to about a month later, at this time, there's probably about five to six weeks left in the season. How much were you making at this point in Taiwan? I was making over $100,000 playing there. All right. So you were making a decent, you were, especially in 95, like in Taiwan. And like, do they pay for your housing? Like what, what is sort of the financial situation? Is it 100000 that you get to put in your pocket or you got to pay for other stuff too? They took care of my apartment while I was there. And what, also what they did in Taiwan is they paid you bonus money. For every time you won a game, the team paid you a bonus. You know, if you're the starting pitcher and you went nine innings, you got a nice chunk of money. If you were three for four or the home run, you got a nice chunk of money. Even if you sat on the bench, they gave you something. It was like 30, 40, 50 bucks worth of money just by being on the winning team. So you had these bonuses that you made too. So it's weird to me, like people are getting paid pretty well and they're getting these bonuses. You've really got to be incentivized if like you had heard, there were gangsters trying to get people to throw games, right? Yeah. I was kind of surprised that you're getting paid all this money. Why would people even want to do it? Gambling is a big part of the culture there too. So, well, I, it just, things happen. One night after a game, you are approached by a buddy. He wants to go sing at a karaoke bar, which is a pretty regular thing because that's a big part of the culture there. In Taiwan, they love to sing. Uh, there's karaoke bars everywhere. I mean, like, I mean, in a building, there might be three different businesses in one building. You look down the street, you see down the road, you see four or five of these things. So they're big. I was asked numerous times by friends that I got to know their teammates. The, the Taiwanese people would often want to bring me because I could sing the American song. I sung them terribly, but they told me I was good. <laughs> we we uh, need your go-to karaoke song, Don. Well, first of all, I tell them, I go, I can't sing. I'm terrible. The only time I can sing is if I'm drunk. I mean, I tell you about within a second, there's a glass of full of whiskey right in front of my face. So that's another part of the culture there, too. But my go-to song was Come Together by the Beatles. 
How did you end up with Come Together by the Beatles? I got a go-to karaoke song too. It's I Want to Be Sedated by the Ramones, um, which is basically how people feel when they hear me sing. I like that song though, by the way. I was once singing karaoke in a bar and the bartender asked one of the people I was with to make sure that I didn't do it again. True story. <laughs> and so, I didn't sing good, but they kept telling me and they kept asking me to sing more and more. All right, so you get invited to go to this karaoke bar by someone you know that's on the team? Yeah, he was a guy that worked, he was a young kid that worked through the team. I liked the kid a lot. We often did a lot of things together. So it was no big deal for him to say, hey, I know some people that want to take us out to the KTV tonight. I said, all right, let's go do it. You know, we go in there and we know most of the people, people I've seen before, this or that. And we drink, we sing, we eat, they bring lots of food in and it's a good time. So I thought, hey, no big deal. Done it before. We go, as usual, we go in this place. It's in Taipei. I know, I remember, we, basically, I think we went, it was like on the 10th floor. So it was kind of a little bit taller of a building. And all those buildings are big. It's like being in New York City everywhere. It's like just a densely populated place. So anyways, we walk in the place. And normally when we go, it'd be like five to six guys at most, you know, something left laying there. I bet there's like 15, maybe 20 people. And so therefore the room was bigger than normal. And I walked in at first, I wasn't really looking there, but I, 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 I didn't really recognize anybody, which is like, oh, wow, okay, a lot of people I don't know. Maybe some friends of mine who I will know might come later or something. So me and my buddy, we sit down, have a few drinks and listen to the music. And, and then this Taiwanese lady approached me and she came up and speaking in English, asked me my name. So I told her my name. She says, what are you doing here? Oh, well, I'm a baseball player. Oh, okay. And then just making some little talk. After about a few minutes or so, whatever it was, then she is asking me, um, and then this is when I knew gambling was for sure going on. She goes, Don, do you know what the untruth game is? And I'm like, oh, I just kind of looked down and I mean, I immediately knew what she was getting at. The untruth game, the fake game, the, the fixing of baseball games. So I'm just sitting there thinking and she asked me, would you like, we can somehow, she said, some, we, would you like to do that with our group? Had you ever heard of the phrase, the untruth game before? At that point, I might have, but when she said it, I knew exactly what she was getting at. I'm trying to think now, how am I going to get out of here now? Now, as I, I kind of look, lift my eyes up and I'm scanning the room, I'm realizing these guys are gangsters. Here's, right in the middle of the whole room is the big, the big boss himself, kind of surrounded with some bug kind of looking guys, you know, which you kind of picture in your mind. So I'm thinking, oh, man. So she looks at me and says, oh, you're looking so sad. Like, oh, no, no, I'm fine. She says, hey. You see that girl over there? She points across the room. Do you think she's cute? Like, well, yeah, sure, she's cute. Just she you can have her. Like, oh, okay. Then I go, you know what? I don't think I'm, I'm going to be able to do this. No, just here's what we got to do. Here's what we do. They told me that they'll give you $10,000 right now just to think about it. And I'm going, no, no. I go, you know what? I'm not going to do this. They go, do you see that girl over there? That other one? I go, yeah, you can have her too. And they're telling me, we can make a lot of money doing this. I, I finally said, you know what, go tell the boss. They can bet on me to win all they want, but no, I'm not throwing any games. Tell them no. She goes, are you sure? I go, yeah, tell them no right now. She goes, now you know if you, never, if you don't do this, you'll never win a game here again. I said, go ahead, that's fine. So she walks about 15 feet away. She goes up to the big boss, and she tells him what I said, because then as soon as she was done talking, his head turned and met my eyes immediately. And he didn't look too happy. Within about a couple of seconds, he stands up and so he yells out loudly in the whole place, something in Chinese. I didn't understand it. But like within a second or two, the music stopped. It was dead silent. 
And then I guess they're saying, everybody, we're leaving. So everybody started standing up and then started making their way to the door. They come back to me and said, yeah, you're leaving too. I go, oh, that's right. I'll, I'll let you guys go. Now, I was going to let them all leave the, go out the door, and I was going to say, go in and, and sneak out a back door. So now I know I'm dealing with these gangs. I mean, they pistol whip people in the heads, and, you know, they, they kill people. So I'm like, no, I, I'll stay here. Well, they kind of, kind of, not grab me, but they kind of push me and shoo me out the door we go and towards an elevator. I'm like, oh, brother. So maybe I'll wait to be the last on the elevator, and I'll take the stairs down somewhere or something. No, they get me on that elevator, and I'm the last guy in this elevator car. So that means as the door shuts right in my face, my back is turned to everybody. Now I'm getting real nervous. Right? Part I'm getting real nervous is, is what direction is the elevator going to go in? Is it going to go up or down? If it's going to go up, that's to the roof. I'm getting tossed off the roof. My heart was pounding, needless to say, but it's, I don't know if it slowed down a little bit, but we, it felt better that we were making our way down the elevator. Now, to go down 10 floors took a real long time in my mind. I was literally waiting for someone to, like, snap something around my neck and choke me off from behind and strangle me. We finally make it down to the lobby floor. The door, the door opens. They go at left. I go right. That was when I felt like just this great relief. Then I saw the guy that brought me there, my buddy. I went up to him. And I, I threw some, some words I won't use here on your show, but some of them start with the letter F and asked him what the blank was going on. What is this about? And he, and he started apologizing. He's almost in tears, ready to cry apologizing, saying, sorry, sorry. He says, they made me bring you here. And so don't you ever effing do that again. I was never approached again that season about that stuff at all. Was there any moment when that woman approached you and she's like, you can have this woman, you can have this woman, just think about it for 10K. Was there even a second where you're like <laughs> hesitating? You didn't, you didn't out loud say it, but like, did you run through scenarios in your head? No, it was a, it was a flat no. Because I was looking, I was upset that there could be gambling going on with my teammates or, or the rest of the players in the league. You know, and, I, and I'm glad. I mean, I didn't want to do it. And I look back now and think that, you know, I could have made a lot of money doing it, but I didn't. I, I wanted to keep my integrity. You know, um, I didn't want to be a cheater. Um, I, wanted, I didn't want to ruin my name in baseball, especially after being a Major League Baseball player. And the last major, major thing was I didn't want to embarrass, have my name be an embarrassment with baseball for my son, who was, who was a little kid at the time. So I had all those things. That was just straight out there. There was no, there was no way I was going to do it. John, it's such a wild story. I was, so I've, I've been thinking about this in the context of why they would approach a guy like you. It's one of my favorite Major League Baseball records is Steve Carlton, the fact that he won 27 games for a Phillies team that won 59 games. You won 14 games for a CPBL team that won 28 games in one season. So you were responsible for half of the team's wins and 26% of their innings pitched for the season. Do you think because you were essentially the workhorse of the league at that point that they saw you as a guy who could have more influence on the outcome of these games? Probably. Yeah, I mean, we were on the last place team. We were a bad team. Yeah, we, we played 100 games that year, and we only won 28. So I won half the games. Plus, I saved a game that year. So I was responsible <laughs> more than 50% of the, the wins that year. I think, I look back, I think they approached me because we were last, we were losing all the time, and that, oh, well, we're losing anyways. I might as well make some money doing it. You know, maybe because I was a major leaguer, maybe I, maybe I could pull it off. I don't think I could have pulled it off, even if I wanted to. 
I would try to throw a ball four, and I'd probably throw it right down the middle of the plate. I would try to throw the game. It'd be so obvious that they would just probably arrest me right off the field, put me in handcuffs there or something, you know? So they must have thought that I can pull this up. Now, the funny thing about it was they told me I'd never win a game. Well, my last five games of the season, I had four wins and one no decision. So, you know, they, they let me be, and then, you know, I didn't lose any more games, and I, I played the rest of the year. Two years later, after that 96 season, in 1997, in Taiwan, they formed a second professional baseball league. I joined that one. Now, good thing I did that because when this 96 season ended, the gambling stuff came out in the news in Taiwan, and the fans were deeply hurt. Now, not only that, but several players in Taiwan got arrested. One team had so many guys arrested that they couldn't have a team the next year unless unless the other teams in the league loaned them players for the, the following season. So we moved on, and I moved on into the, the – it was called the Taiwan Major League that next year. Good thing about that was we were a brand-new league, so we were clean, so we didn't have any gambling. The fans that were just truly faithful to the teams, I mean, there was thousands and thousands of people going to games, and then in that following season, after it all came out in the CPBL, sometimes only a couple hundred people would come to a game. So it hurt them big time. The fans felt cheated. So I moved on to the, the Taiwan Major League. Now, in that next year, I was out one time, and this one guy, again, this other guy approached me, and they wanted to go out, and I was a little suspicious, something or other. And he came to me, and he says, hey, there's this guy, he wants, us, he wants me to know if you'll, if you'll do this throwing games. I said, no, no, no. And he says, okay. Because I, I had to ask. The gangsters all know that you won't do it, but we, they wanted me to ask you anyways. I said, well, you go tell them, like, oh, you can bet on me to win, but none of this. So it did come back a couple of years later, and, man, that's just kind of that sort of why, why they chose me. Well, they thought maybe I could pull it off or make a lot of money doing it. Were you ever scared after they had approached you and you said no once you got out of the elevator and were back sort of in general life? Yeah, oh, I, I was scared. Yeah, I mean, I knew I was in a room full of gangsters, and I'm telling them no. That big time in, the, in, that, in that karaoke room was supposed to be a big celebration of me joining forces with them to make a lot of money. And then, and then in their face, I, I tell them no. So they don't play nice. I, I, was, I was in fear of my life. I mean, I thought I'd be thrown off a roof or killed or, or something was going to happen to me. So, yeah, I, I was afraid. And I thought, who knows, in the next few weeks or to come, you know, am I suddenly, is something going to get me out of nowhere? So I was kind of looking over my shoulder a little bit, but nothing ever did. You know, you talked a lot about losing with integrity, and I think that's certainly something that people could understand. But when we're coming off of, you know, the, the entire Astros scandal, and obviously we haven't really seen that play out because we haven't had major league games for those players to get booed yet. But, you know, based on the era when you played, I'm sure you had guys doctoring the baseball, stuff like that. How did you feel at the time about guys trying to, gain an unfair edge, you know, on the field in, in terms of trying to win, you know, unrelated to the gambling side of things. Back when I was playing in major leagues or even minor league baseball, I mean, guys would try to scuff the ball up a little bit and get a little movement. And some guys would load it up and throw a little spitball here and there. I mean, getting signed, I think, on the field is fair. If there's a runner on second, that's why the catcher gives multiple signs because guys can look in. And I think that's part of the game. But how long is a guy in second base? Is he there long enough to get the sign and then have time to then flash him to the batter? Yeah, it, it happens, but it's hard. But if you're sitting there with a TV monitor watching every single pitch and you break their codes, you know what's coming, then you're banging drums. That's just 
that's outside. That's using technology and, and cheating in that way, you know. I, I, I felt that what the Houston Astros did were, was definitely wrong. You said you're writing a book. I want everyone to follow you at Don August 38 because I feel like they're going to enjoy more and more stories from the wild and fabulous world of international baseball. Yeah. I got the rough book already written out. I'm just in the process of editing it and cleaning up. But me and the guy I'm working with is, you know, we're trying to get an editor, a publisher, which is always the hardest part. But, you know, I think one of the reasons why my son, hey, let's throw some, some stories out there. If they're good, this thing kind of does anything. Hey, it can't help, can't hurt. So, yeah. All right, Don August, at Don August 38. Thank you very much for coming on The Favorites. Thank you, everybody, for listening to The Favorites. Download it from Apple Podcasts, from Spotify, from Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcasts. Rate, review, subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe. Until next time, love you. Love you.